Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2, 18-23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats and let's pray. All right, as we always do here at Taproot Church, um, two weeks on one of the most difficult topics culturally, societally that we're facing right now, we're going to be talking about gender, gender responsibilities, gender roles, does gender exist, what does the Bible say about gender? Uh, so if you're new to Taproot Church, I trust that you'll continue coming. We work our way through books of the Bible, but today we're going to be in Genesis. Next week we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul talks about man being the glory of woman and all these difficult things about shaving your head and men can't have long hair and so it's going to be a fun couple weeks. Let's pray. Father, um, in all seriousness, our society is so hurting the friends and family members, the neighbors and co-workers that we love so deeply in this city, Lord, are longing to experience fullness of life and fullness of humanity and flourishing. Our heart, my heart, your heart breaks for this world. And in so many ways, Lord, like little children who think that touching the hot stove is the thing that will bring pleasure and instead it brings pain. Our world and ourselves, we, Father, before you, choose to define ourselves, do with ourselves things that actually damage us and even destroy us. And you, our loving God, come through the scriptures, you come through the community of faith, you come and you clearly say, I have created you. I am so in love with you. 
I am not confused about who I made you to be. And so, Father, may each of us be brought to that point of submission. All of us have points of confusion in our hearts and minds about who we are, what we're supposed to do. We all are struggling with that sense of insignificance and insecurity. But here in this room, may this community be a family. May this city, Lord, become a family as unto you. This city, not just this church, but our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, gym partners, Lord, our neighbors. May we love them as we love you. Bless this time this morning. Bring clarity of heart and mind as these next two weeks we tackle the difficult topic of gender in our society. And may we be a humble people, Father, not finger-pointing and judgmental, but broken and dependent and loving and caring and concerned about our world and its health and its well-being. Bless this time in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. So through human history... In every epoch, there have been massive paradigm shifts that have shaped the way that we think about things. Webster's defines paradigm shift in this way. It is an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. So here in the West, we've seen paradigm shifts going back thousands of years, clear unto the time of Christ. Some of the most recent ones, take for example the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, where the modern mind frame moved away from mystical thinking and the reliance upon God as our source of knowledge and authority to human reasoning and scientific method. The paradigm shift from the Enlightenment shapes the way that we as modern people think about the world and understand truth and submit to authority. At the turn of the 20th century, there was the suffragette movement, women's liberation, the right for women to vote in the United States, categorically different way of thinking about femininity and its role in society. The civil rights movement with Martin Luther King Jr. of the 50s and the 60s, finally recognizing the racial tensions which we still deal with today and are deliberately as a church fighting against and fighting for racial reconciliation. That paradigm shift changed the way that culture and society thought about race relations. The sexual revolution of the 60s, burning the bra, dropping some LSD, dropping out. This was where collectively society said, morality will no longer chain us. We will self-define morality. And today, in 2017, we are dealing with the aftershocks of the earthquake paradigm shift of the sexual revolution. Some of you gray hairs in here, thank you very much for that. (laughs) In the 80s and the 90s, it was the invention of the World Wide Web. The internet, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs created a paradigmatic shift in the way that we think about culture. And along with it came its own language. Google it. They Facebooked it. They are Facebook official. 
All of these things were paradigm shifts that have occurred through human history, and they occur in every generation, some subtle, some not so subtle. These paradigm shifts, some bring good, some bring bad, some bring definition, some bring destruction, and some bring this intermingling of all of that in one moment in time. Today, as a church, we, this generation of the church, Christians, are experiencing and in the midst of the most intense and profound paradigm shift that human society has ever seen. And it involves our understanding of who and what we are as human beings. The paradigm shift within which we find ourselves in this society is an ongoing discussion around the nature of gender. What is gender? Is there male and female? What is masculinity? What is femininity? Who defines masculinity, femininity, male, female? Is it created? Is is it something that we create? All of these things are happening. And let me tell you, as one who studies culture, one who studies history, I have never seen in the record books nor in modern society a paradigm shift that is happening as fast and as aggressively and as intensely as what we are seeing in front of our eyes today in this moment. Ten years ago, if someone would have spoken to me and asked me a question about gender-neutral parenting, I would have kind of relegated it to maybe some naked hippies out in North Bend, some little commune of people. I wouldn't have ever thought that this would be a prevalent discussion point for young parents. And in a church like ours, this is a question that comes up all the time with all the baby bellies and all the little babies, the thousands of babies back there in those back rooms. You parents are asking me questions like, hey, Danny, what do you think about gender-neutral parenting? Ten years ago, I would have never even considered such a thing. Even five years ago, if somebody told me that when I was blogging or in conversation with a professor at the University of Washington that I would need to choose my pronouns carefully and understand that there's a subset of pronouns that are necessary to not offend the person in front of me, such as near, viz, er, nay, they, a, and zay, I would have laughed. I would have. Please don't take offense at that. I'm not trying to be caustic or biting. I'm simply saying that the paradigm shift that has occurred so quickly in our society in the last 10 years has taken things that weren't even on the horizon of our thinking, have taken things that we might have seen in some sort of sitcom on a Sunday night and brought them right into the present, and it is no laughing matter. These are deeply ingrained, real issues that we are facing, and we need to have, as Christians, a biblical understanding and a biblical position and a biblical heart for the society around us that says, I love you enough to stand and say that God created you with a specific purpose. He created you in a specific way. And to deny that purpose and to deny that way, to self-define is to say to God, I will touch the stove because I believe that will bring pleasure. In some ways, not to be a doomsday guy on a Sunday morning, what we are seeing is the collapse of human society as we've understood it historically. So, In many ways, we are parallel to what happened in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, there's the story of humanity. 
and they all gather together and they say, humanity collectively says, we're going to build a tower up into the heavens. It was this way of telling Yahweh, their creator, we are going to collectively usurp and reach above you, God. We are going to be our own society governed by our own ideals, governed by our own morals, governed by our own subjective feelings, and we're going to build this tower to the heavens, and we're going to be unified in that. We are in a parallel Tower of Babel culture, where societally, where culturally, we see this collective unification of human beings across the globe, at this point particularly on the left side of the political spectrum, at this point particularly on the liberal progressive side of the spectrum, coalescing into one voice, building a tower unto heaven, saying, you, God, will not define who we are. We will define who we are. And God, in his mercy with the Tower of Babel, disseminated that, broke that, coale- that coalition of people, broke them down by dividing their languages. And I don't know what God will do in this next season. The church, we, God's people, black, white, Mexican, Asian, Male and female, all together, the church, those who follow Jesus, disciples of Jesus, those who have radically reoriented their lives around this this peasant carpenter from this obscure place in the Middle East who, who got himself killed by the Romans, but his followers said he was alive. Those of us who believe that he's actually alive, followers of Jesus, we the church, we are, we are set in this time and space, and I want you to feel the mandate of responsibility in this. Feel the burden and the weight of this. The church is set in the time and space such as this, as a rock in this cultural current of transformation. And a, a steady, unmovable, unchanging rock. And the church has been this way from its inception, from the resurrection of Jesus. Cultural tides and currents and tsunamis crash over the church, try to wash the church away, and God's people stand broken and dependent and humble and reliant upon their creator. And the currents of the river continue to rage and rush about them, but we stand faith-filled and steadfast for the glory of Jesus and for the good of all humanity. That's what we're called to. We are called to be that non-anxious presence in the midst of this panicked culture. We are called to be, and God has made us in Christ, humans flourishing, fully human. We are utterly persuaded that the God who created every human being on this planet recreates us in Jesus, accepts us in Jesus, the perfect human being, and now we no longer define our human essence by our subjective feelings or even by our broken thinking. We actually now define ourselves in accord with how God has made us and the way that God wants to use us. And so this room is to be a room of people being fully human, humans flourishing, And that does not mean fully human better than the rest of the world. That has been the most destructive damage that the church has brought to the world. Pride and arrogance and judgmentalism. But a humble people who have come to say, I trust Jesus, I don't trust myself. I trust my creator, I don't trust myself. And in that space of humility and brokenness, we are returned to the garden, the story that was read to us this morning. 
where humans existed in harmony with one another, in harmony with their God, fulfilling their essence, being who they were for the glory of God and for their own good without fear or shame. So these next two weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be talking about gender. We're going to be talking about the why of gender, the hows of gender, the importance of gender. Today, I just wanted to lay a foundation because next week we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which in my opinion, in studying the Bible for 20 years now and teaching it for almost 17, uh, it is maybe one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Uh, Paul talks about dudes not being able to have long hair, uh, which I'm covered, I'm extra holy righteous. He talks about women having to wear head coverings. There's this obscure little thing where, 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 where Paul says women need to be under the authority of men because of the angels, which makes total sense, right? <laughs> this is what we're going to be talking about next week. So I really do want to invite you guys not to miss next week. Uh, it's going to be confusing and controversial, and it's going to lead us right to Jesus, which is going to be awesome. But what I wanted to do today was just lay this huge foundation for us on what the Bible teaches about gender at the baseline at the very core, at the very root of who we are and what we believe about gender in this world. So let's start with this question this morning. Why gender? Why male, female? Why have these things even created in the world? And by the way, if you're new here, um, we're going to work off the presupposition that there is a God. If your presupposition is that there is no God, then you're right. We're just a conglomeration of accidental cells, and you can do with yourself whatever you want, okay? But we're going to work on the presupposition that there is a God, that there, that there is a God who has a purpose. And here at Taproot, we believe that that God has revealed himself in the Bible. So let's start there, okay? Why gender? Why is gender so important? To answer that question, we need to talk about what the great theologians through the history of the church have called the Imago Dei. Can you guys say that? Imago Dei. Yes. What a beautiful Latin phrase. It means image of God, that we are image bearers. Let's talk about this notion. We read it here in Genesis 1 that God created them in his image, male and female. What exactly does this mean? In the ancient Near Eastern cultures, and really in ancient culture in general, the God represented would be presented to the culture within which that God ruled by statues. These immense images of the God who ruled. So if you look at any archaeology book, you'll see all of these insane, huge statues from the history of humanity. Those statues were images, and those statues would be placed throughout any given society as a testimony, as a reflection to that ruling God and his glory and his grandeur. And so you would enter into a city and you would see this massive statue and you would realize, whoa, this God is powerful. This God is huge. Because you would see the image of that God present in every place that you went. Now, there was this obscure people, small little marginalized group of people in the Middle East called Israelites, Hebrews. And they told a backward story from the rest of the culture around them. The pagan culture said there are multitudes of gods, and so there were multitudes of images out in the world that represented all of these multitudes of gods. And then this obscure, crazy little group of prophets and poets called the Israelites told the story differently. We read it here this morning. They said that Yahweh, God, the creator of the universe, was one, and there was only one. And that that God created his image bearers. And he didn't put his image in the world through statues. 
And he didn't put his image in the world through kings, which, by the way, in some of these cultures, such as Egypt, the leaders or the king himself was considered the embodiment of that God in the world. This is why you have the great pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx guarding that temple, so to speak, because the Sphinx were the corollary to the cherubim, the angels that would guard the God in his palace, in his temple. And so these ancient Hebrews, they taught, they said in this backwards kind of obscure, upside-down way, hey, the image bearer that God presents himself to the world through isn't statues, and it's not elite kings, it's all of us. It's humanity. And what was so scandalous about the Hebrew passages that we just read in that culture was that it wasn't the elite kings that were embodying or image-bearing or representing God in the world. It was the laymen, the lowly, all of us, and they were mere gardeners. How silly does that sound? When we think about Egypt and the embodiment of the God in this world, we have the three pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx and we have slaves and we have power and we have authority. And the Hebrews are saying, no, God images himself in this world through regular human beings, gardeners, farmers. You're to go out and till the land and cultivate it. How scandalous this was in the ancient cultures. Even more scandalous than that, as we get into the nitty-gritty of this, you guys need to give me about an hour today. This is important stuff. So just give me an hour, stick with me, and then we'll get after it, okay? Even more important was that the ancient Hebrews here in Genesis were telling the culture around them, not only are the image bearers not statues and not elite, but it's just regular human beings, but women equally image bear. In my studies over the years, I have become aware of something that is so important for us as Christians to embrace. The scandal of the Bible in almost every place in so many societies throughout history was its liberation of women, its elevation of women, its exaltation of women. These ancient Hebrews were saying, it's not only humanity that's going to image bear God, it's not only Adam, Adam, man, but it's also equally, with equal dignity, equal value, and equal authority, Heva, Eve, woman. She is going to be dignified. She is going to be valuable. She is going to image bear equally with the man. And so we see this amazing, scandalous pushing back against the norms of culture at the very onset of the Bible. Now, image bearing was going to be twofold. There was two primary things that these image bearers, these gardeners, these first humans were to do in the Garden of Eden. They were to rule, number one, and they were to reflect. They were to rule and they were to reflect. Let's talk about image bearing as ruling. We, as a reformed-ish, complementarian church, if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry about it. But the point is, we have a certain theology that I think has diminished our partnership with God. I think some of us in this room have become accidental fatalists. Well, God is sovereign. God will do whatever he wants in the world. No, 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 no. The Bible from the very beginning says you as an image bearer, you are a viceroy of the king to partner with the creator and go out and rule. Now, rule is a dangerous word in our society. Some of you are cringing like, oh, great. Here come these crazy over-authoritarian Christians and they're ruling and they're reigning. They're so judgmental. They're so awful. That's not what ruling meant. 
in the passage itself, to go out and rule on behalf of God was to go out and cultivate society, to go out and farm and garden and be fruitful and multiply. In a lot of ways, you could simplify the idea of ruling Adam and Eve Man and woman going out and ruling as God image bearers in the world as planting fruit trees, eating some lettuce, and having a lot of babies. How's that? Being a family representative of God in the world was the way to go out and cultivate healthy human society. Moms and dads and babies and aunts and uncles and cousins all living together in this gigantic union of humanity, ruling and reigning, loving one another in harmony, loving the world around them in harmony. The Bible is eco-sensitive and the Bible is a feminine, I am woman, hear me roar document. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. It's amazing to me. That through every epoch of history, the Bible is the fountainhead of actually liberating women when it is read and interpreted correctly. Now, we're going to get to how we've messed this up, how Adam and Eve messed this up, how you and I have messed this up here in just a moment. So they were commissioned. You and I are commissioned to partner with God, walking with him in the cool of the garden to go out and cultivate society, cultivate community, cultivate friendships, cultivate family. We're not to run from it. We're not to escape it. We're not to condemn it and judge it. We are to go and be in our society, in the midst of our friends, saying this is what flourishing it is, is care for one another, respect of one another, dignity and equal value for one another between man and woman, between all human beings together. Post-fall, that's Genesis 3 with that weird little passage about the talking snake and the forbidden fruit and all that stuff that all of us are familiar with. Post-fall, we no longer rule as God intended us to rule. Now we rule in the way that all of us are cringing about in this room, over-authoritarian, manipulative, self-serving. Now we go out and we rob, kill, murder, and destroy, war with one another in the name of ruling over one another because we've lost our ultimate ruler under whom we always were intended to serve, God himself. And so now we, like little g-gods, go out in our deformed way and seek to rule over one another, and there's maybe no longer lasting war than the war between the sexes. Adam and Eve from the very beginning. He deceived me, says Eve, and the first thing that Adam does is, she made me do it, Lord, and points the finger. And from that moment on, the war between the sexes has gone on in this world. They were to rule But here's the second aspect. They were to reflect. Image-bearing included reflecting God and his character, his essence in the world. When you saw the statue of this huge, whatever, dog-headed Babylonian statue, whatever it is that these guys had, you would automatically have fear because that thing represented power and all these things. When you, when you went into Pharaoh's courts, you were overwhelmed with the bigness and the awesomeness of who this embodiment of God was. And human beings, they were to go out and reflect the character of God, his holiness, his beauty, his perfections, all of his facets. And this is where the importance of distinction comes in between male and female. Now, to get this right, we've been talking about this in staff meeting. I've been having multitudes of conversations with women in this church. Next week, we're going to have a women's panel that's going to come up here, and we're going to talk about what it's like to be a woman in today's culture, what it's going to be like, what it's like to be a, a woman in Taproot Church itself. Where do we need to fix things? Suffice it to say, we need to start 
our understanding of male and female with this foot forward. We are equal. We rule equally. We bear equal authority. We start with equality. We start with we are humanity representing and ruling for God in this world, cultivating human society. Sin breaks that down and automatically we, we move the pieces on the puzzle board, so to speak, on the chessboard, and now one is better than the other. But from the beginning, and as a new humanity, this can't be the case. We have to fight to be together. And now this aspect of reflection is where we see that there is a difference between man and woman. This is where we as a non-anxious presence in the midst of our panic culture, this is where we as a rock in the midst of this river of cultural transformation have to stand and say, out of love for our friends and neighbors, God created man and woman equal, and God created man and woman different because, because this is why. You and I, as man and woman, are reflecting who God is in all of his diversity. He chose to reflect all of his fullness of character, his Trinitarian being, big theological ideas that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but one. Diverse, but unified. He chose to make human beings that are essentially equal, dignified, and valuable, one, but diversified, different in the way that he made them, to express himself fully to the world around them. And the way that he did that is there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, which we read, I will make a, hipper, a, a helper, I'm nervous right now reading this, I will make a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him, he says about the woman. He says, from a rib, in other words, you know, from, whether it was literally from a rib or, or what the poets were trying to teach us, I will bring from his side a dignified helper. Okay, before you get up and walk out, let's talk about this word helper, okay? Let's talk about this word helper and what God was trying to express and reflecting through femininity in this world, his character, his being part of who he is, helper. It's the Hebrew word edzer, edzer, okay? And it's a fascinating word to me. It's translated help all through the Hebrew scriptures, but in many places, it's used in reference to God. So if we take the notion of helper as we currently understand it, especially in reference to men and women in the world, immediately we all think, okay, great, here we go. These Christians, subjugation of women. Look, they go to their Bible passage. There it is in Genesis 1. It says she's a helper, which means she's barefoot, pregnant, staying at home washing the dishes, do my laundry lady, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. In some instances in, in human history, through most of human history, in actuality, it actually meant women weren't allowed to speak, women weren't allowed to vote. If you go back to the time of Jesus, women were considered on par with, with dogs. The witness of a woman in court, said one Jewish rabbi, was of equal value as a dog's witness in court. Which is interesting that the apostles and the New Testament opens with women testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible is a feminist document in the most holy sense of that word. Please, God, don't let anybody misinterpret what I just said. Okay? Now listen. Listen. This word, edzer. God says about Adam and Eve, you're going to go and rule equally with equal authority and value and dignity. You're going to go cultivate human society. You're going to cultivate beauty and culture together equally. And you're going to do it diversely so that this world sees who I am. You're going to do it femininely and masculinely. 
And I'm going to create for you, Adam, an Edzer, one who helps you. We think that means subjugation, that means servant, that means hierarchy. That is not what this text is saying. The word Edzer is used actually 15 times in the Old Testament of God himself. God! God himself says, I am the helper. Just this morning, I woke up and I always check you version on our Bibles, and you get that verse of the day, I look unto the hills where my help comes from. God is my edzer, my helper. The word is vested with the very dignity and power and strength and majesty of God himself. He is saying, I want to image bear. I want to reflect my edzerness, my supportedness, my strength into this world. Now, the other places that this word is used throughout the Old Testament, it's a military term. It's not a feminine, oh, I'm so scared term. It is, I'm so submissive. I just want to help because I'm a lady. Don't hear me roar. It's not that. It is a military term that actually means to give support, help, strength to accomplish a purpose, winning a victory in most instances. God said, I'm going to create for you one that is equal with you who will reflect my ability to strengthen and fight and war and support to cultivate in this chaotic world my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It is not subjugation. It is that servant-heartedness. It is not slavery. It is testimony to the goodness of God in the world that you women have been given that men cannot do. We cannot do what God has given you to do in the world as equal, valuable image bearers. It simply is not in our makeup. It's like asking us to fly. We have no wings with which we have been made to fly with. And so, too, women cannot accomplish in this world what men have been given to do in this world. Now, reminding you that all of this is broken. All of you are hearing this. I'm reading this and preaching this through a lens of brokenness and sin and subjugationism and misogyny and hierarchicalism and the oppression of women for hundreds of years. But we stand here today as a non-anxious presence, disciples radically reoriented around Jesus saying, no, 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 no. We're going to be fullness of humanity here. We're going to be new humanity. We're going to be the new garden people. We're going to rule and cultivate human society. And we're going to embrace this reflection of God in the world as God sees fit. Because that's what it is to be fully human. Fully human. It's what you want. Whether you know it or not, this is what you want. It's what you've been looking for. All the longing and all the insecurity and all the sense of insignificance and all the sense of suffering has led you to this point where God is saying to you, I made you and I love you, but you've got to hear me and see me and follow me. It's amazing. It's amazing. And he's doing this through us. If you guys want to hear an interesting little, I'm in a church history class right now for my MDiv, just learning tons of super cool stuff. One of the greatest struggles in the development of the Trinity in the third and fourth centuries when these doctrines were being hammered out, one of the greatest struggles that they actually had with the idea of Trinity, God being three equal persons, but different in role and responsibility, they couldn't get their head around that one of the Godhead members, Jesus namely, would be a servant. It just was so utterly offensive to them. Listen to this quote. 
Bruce Shelley writes this, subordinationists, which were an early, this is an early heresy. Subordinationists imagined that if Jesus served the Father, he was beneath the Father. In most ancient cultures, a person's rank was determined by family status and achievement. In this mindset, great people were distinguished from lesser persons who would inevitably serve the greater people. Now listen, the radical Christian notion was that God honored the dignity of the Son who served the Father out of love, not because of inferiority. Christ followers, Christians following Jesus through this doctrine saw service as the evidence of Christ's likeness, not of weakness nor inferiority, and it was scandalous. Some in this room right now are saying, oh, wait, he's using a lot of service language. All of us are going to interpret that as that means I'm the one that does the dishes and, and do the laundry and all. That's not what's being said here. Service, when we think about the word edzer, also includes how do you win a war? You guide the generals, right? You give wisdom and counsel. In a lot of ways, and I'll use my marriage as an example, um, in a lot of ways, my wife leads my home in the sense that if you guys haven't ever met Alexis, she is, she is, she is the most profoundly beautiful, perfect woman on the planet. She is. So, fellas, sorry, I got her. You can't have her. And the point being, she, she supplies, so, so I'm kind of the, uh, I'm kind of, let's, let's be gender sensitive here. I'm kind of the drama queen. <laughs> I'm kind of up and down and all around. I'm a pretty intense person, which means if I'm high, I'm high. If I'm low, I'm low. And my wife's just like leading. She's there. She's stable. My faith on any given day is I'm not even sure there is a God to, oh my gosh, he's parting the Red Sea. He's amazing. And that happens within an hour time frame. My <laughs> wife, my wife is like, God is good, God is there. She adds there. And her and I together, my passion and intensity and ability to not worry about risk, and her stable, steady, moving forward, there together, we go forth and we cultivate Sophia and Nyla and Joby. And in God's grace right now, we get to cultivate Taproot Church alongside you. And we cultivate our, our pubs and our gyms, and we love our people in this city, and we love our neighborhoods, and we care for people together. Adzer, help. Strength, support, without which, as it's been said, you know, behind every great man is a great woman. I, I would argue beside every great man is a greater woman. <laughs> I'm not trying to like patty cake with the language here to not be offensive. I'm literally saying I think as Christians we need to understand the, the absolute dignity of femininity in this world and its importance and we also need to redefine help as help can look like your wife saying, we're not going to do that because that's stupid. <laughs> and the husband saying, you're right. Let me use really offensive language to some of the Christians that have been raised up in this. You submit to your wife. <gasps> in Christian culture, this is scandalous. And I'm using words to provoke conversation. Now, the Bible is very clear in submission language and headship language. When we get to next week, it's going to be just one hour of the most offensive words you can possibly use in this culture. <laughs> uh, but the point being, we have to reframe ourselves in the image-bearing reality of God, which is equality. And then this idea of Edzer, the helper fit for him, is a strengthening, dignified source of support that helps accomplish the mission and vision of what? Bringing God to this Bringing God to this world. 
Now, societally, societally, what we see is the stripping away of this. And now we're at a point in the last 10 years where it's not only the stripping away, it is the demand that all of society say this is true. So with the birth of, of an entire new psychiatric class and new psychological terms, they're rewriting the, uh, the DMS right now around gender sensitivities. Um, all of these things, what we see is society is collectively saying, that's stupid, we're going to do what we want to do. If you're here and you struggle with same-sex attraction, and we have people in our church that struggle with same-sex attraction, you're here and you struggle with a definition of masculinity and femininity, I want you to hear from the onset that you are absolutely welcome here. 100% to struggle with and to, to, to be confused you might be surprised. I wish, I wish in just one moment we could have all the thoughts that I'm thinking right now on a big screen behind me and all the thoughts that this room is thinking right now on a big screen. And I think there would be a pretty large percentage of, I at one point thought I was very feminine. Like the most masculine guy in this room is going, yeah, I like to play with dolls when I was a little kid. Nobody knows that. <laughs> you know, I would love for that transparency to happen because then it puts us all on the same playing field. But... What we can't submit to, Christians, is this, and I'm going to say it biblically and frankly, um, the satanic and the societal demand to deny the very essence of what human beings are. It, it's like saying, yes, let's just self-mutilate because that's what's best for us. We, we have to be, I have to be, you have to be too in love with our friends and family members and neighbors to stand with that. When we, when humanity collectively decides we will self-define and we will create entirely new paradigm shift terminology and vocabulary, such as gender fluidity and an entire set of pronouns that goes along with that, we're no longer, we're so far down the road not functioning in how God created us and why God created us that we're just self, self-cutting, destroying. Keller put it really well in, in, I don't know, some book or sermon I read a long time ago, but he said this, if you don't use an entity... In accord with its reason for being, there is an ineffectiveness, a frustration, or even destruction and disintegration. For example, if you take a calculator and you try to change the TV channels, you're going to feel frustrated. If you can't do it because the cal- and it cannot do it because the calculator is not built to turn on TV channels. Let's go one step further, Keller says. If you use your calculator to hammer a nail, the calculator will experience disintegration because it's not built to hammer nails. I'm not trying to be uh, using hyperbole. I think we're seeing the collapse of human society as we know it in front of our eyes. And what will be left is this vestige of people who are saying, you can't bash a nail with a calculator. That's what we're saying here. You can't do that. And in a lot of ways, we need to become the lifeboat for what will be the moral refugees of this paradigm shift. We need to be the lifeboat. We need to, as a church, figure out how do we have somebody come into our community who says, 10 years ago, I went through a sex change and I've become a Christian. Do I identify now as a man or a woman? We need to be able to identify with the parents who are literally desperately saying, well, how do I gender-neutral parent? I don't want to impose upon my child anything that is not what they are. And we need to be able to say, well, if they're male and female, then there are certain parental guidelines that can be... Impl- we have to stand and say a nail cannot be hammered by a calculator. That's what we're saying. 
We got to wrap this up, guys. Let me get through a couple more slides and we'll, we'll come to communion. One of the questions that we're asking is, how do we actually understand male and female? Is there a baseline, male and female? Like, is there a baseline? So is there like a, 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 an operating set of behaviors that are male and masculine and an operating set of behaviors that are male and female? Here's the answer. Yes and no. How's that for you? Yes and no. Yes and no. Here's why. God created us, yes, male and female, and he did that physiologically, he did that biologically, he did that emotionally, he did that hormonally, he did that skeletally, but there are also the very real influences of society and culture on us. And so the way I want to simplify a very complex idea this morning is this, yes, there is a baseline male and female, and it comes through nature. No, there is not a baseline masculinity and femininity. Did you guys hear what I said? There is a baseline male and female, comes through nature. There is not a baseline masculinity, that is way of acting masculine and way of acting feminine. Now, I'm going to flesh this out just a little bit, so stick with me. Through nurture, through the way that society and parents and definitions of culture define for us male and female. Let's talk about the physical creation first. At the very baseline of male and female is the distinction. And God has done it in a very clear way. We are skeletally in structure, different. We are, our muscle structures and tones are different. Our hormonal structures are different. Even in some cases, our neurological brain patternings are physiologically different. Okay? And what's interesting to me is a thousand years from now, when archaeologists are digging up our culture and looking at why we collapsed, kind of like we study Rome now, they're going to find skeletons, and they're not going to be able, regardless of the medical genius that is created in our society and used to transform the human body through hormonal therapy and sex change therapies, regardless, a thousand years from now, when that archaeologist digs up that skeleton, he will say, that was a male skeleton. That was a female skeleton. It will be and is male and female. There, there is no biologically, physiologically, hormonally, skeletally, any ability for us to change those things. So yes, there is a baseline male and female. Now, what about this idea of culture's influence? You might be surprised that the woman of Proverbs 31 is like the CEO of a company, and she is making tons of money for her family. Go read it again, anew and afresh, with fresh eyes, gentlemen. She's the breadwinner. She's going out and she's busting her behind and she is bringing home some big time bucks and she brings respect. Now, I'm, I'm framing this up in an American culture thing, which in an ancient Hebrew culture thing is totally different. I'm trying to get you to be jarred and realize that we here in America have a culturally defined sense of masculinity and femininity that in some cases is right, in some cases is wrong. Male does not necessarily mean gorilla, I am male, unable to speak. And female does not necessarily mean, would you like to sip some tea? Okay? Male does not necessarily, masculinity does not necessarily mean you have to have blue as your favorite color, little boy, and you have to have pink as your favorite color, little girl. But here's where it gets very complex. We don't have time to get into any of this. But let me just say this. It gets very complex. Nature and nurture in defining masculinity and femininity 
where the line blurs, where it's hormonal and physiological and psychological and unchanging and baseline to mom bought you a pink dress that you really liked when you were a little girl and that's helped define what little girls like for you now that you're 40. That definition, that line between nature and nurture, cultural influence and physiological realities is very complex. It's blurred. There is a whole movement out there uh, of psychologists that are laboring with all their heart to create gender-neutral toys. And the studies that are coming out in this, you can hear the frustration in these psychologists' reports because they give a gender-neutral toy to a little boy and he just starts shooting the girl in the room. Anything becomes a gun or a sword or any sort of aggressive little tool. And of course, the gender-neutral toy for the little girl becomes a baby and they want to sit down and, am I stereotyping right now? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. And the fact is, we don't know what that baseline is. What this means for us in our marriages, male and female, is that your marriages are going to look unique. Every one of your marriages and every one of the ways that you relate as a woman to the world and as a man to the world, whether you're married or single, is going to be your own fingerprint. At the baseline is going to be a maleness and a feminineness that moves out into the world and expresses the image of God in the world as God intended you to do it. Next week when we get into 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is dealing with major cultural issues. When he starts talking about haircuts and women shaving their heads and stuff, he is talking about cultural definitions of femininity, but he says to the church, you need to be sensitive to those things. You need to listen to those cultural formations of femininity and masculinity because angels are watching, whatever that means. Because there's this metaphysical reality where God is showing himself to the world through male and female and you define yourself male and female both baseline physiologically and culturally. I don't feel like this is making any sense. Is this making any sense to you guys? Okay, good. We just got to move on then. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? What this means for us is number one, don't deny the dignity and humanity of gender. Honor it. Honor it. In your marriages, in your relationships, honor the dignity of femaleness and femininity. Ladies, Christian ladies in this room, for the love of God and for the love of the men in this room, do not castrate as this society culturally seeks to men. Don't do it as a knee-jerk reaction don't do it because all you read is Facebook instead of your Bible. Don't do it. Stand alongside your brothers at Zer, helpful, image-bearing, with respect of what true masculinity is, which includes, as I tell my son, what's a real man, son? He protects, he provides, he's patient, he's pure. We like to alliterate in my house because we're preachers. <laughs> All of these things of dignity and value, there needs to be an equal sharing of that, and we need to honor that, especially in our marriages, especially in our relationships with one another. Next week, we'll get into, do women submit to men in general? Can women be president of the United States of America? No on question one. Yes on question two. Much more details on that next week. Number two, within our marriages, especially, and within our relationships, recognize that our ruling and reflecting is broken, and so we need to seek the Holy Spirit. We need to seek the Holy Spirit and repent and move by faith. Where we have denied the dignity of femininity and masculinity, we need to be able to say, whoa, I've, I've, I've swallowed a big old cultural pill 
and it's kind of given me indigestion. And so I'm, I'm going to turn back to the Bible now, and with humility and tenderness and carefulness, I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to ask him, how do I express masculinity in this world? How do I express masculinity to my husband? How do I express femininity to my, to my wife? There are baseline behaviors that the Bible gives to us in leadership and honoring and headship and, and the, the dreaded word submission. Um, there are all these baselines that we as Christians need to be delving into and studying. And then finally, we need to pray, figure it out, and go flourish together. Your marriage, your relationships with men and women is going to be a unique fingerprint in this world. So pray, find your way biblically in the midst of community, and then move forward faithfully to image God as a ruler and as a reflector of him. Finally, we close with this. As I've been talking with women in our church, I think this is one of the toughest questions that we have to ask. Which is also a paradigm shift culturally, by the way. In the history of humanity, no, no, no human being would dare ask God, why'd you do it this way? That was dumb, which is what we do as a society. We think, God, I would have done it this way. And we expect God to be like, brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> when instead God is like, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Now, if you're like me and you're cursed and you're constantly in your head, you're very cerebral, and you're constantly asking the why question, like you challenge everything with why just because that's just the way you're wired. What I've discovered over the years is that you peel away the onion layers and you, you get answers to questions. You say, God, why? God, why? God, why? You go to your Bible, you pray, you seek, you get with your family, you hang out with friends, you learn, you learn, you grow. Onion layers peel away. But in every worldview, you will reach a point when you're asking why God and the answer will be because I'm God. And it just, it stops there. That is not an admonition to the ladies in this room, of, of whom there are many in this room that are struggling with this idea. And it's a welcome struggle. I hope that this conversation and what we have next week, I hope it liberates you in your small groups to say, I hate the word submission. I can't stand the way my dad treated my mom. I don't ever want to be treated that way. I hope it opens up the door for you to be able to say, I was so scared that I attended the women's march. I didn't want anybody in the church to know that I was there. You weren't there marching for women's choice as we define it in our society, but you were there marching for the equal dignity and value of women in this world. I hope that all of this scandalizes our church and gets that all stirred up. But you will reach a point, every one of us will, where we're asking God, God, why didn't you use me this way? God, why didn't you do this? God, why'd you create me this way? What, why did you do it this way? And the baseline will be because I'm God. And this is where we close with the cross. These ancient Hebrews, they also promised that there would be one coming who would exemplify masculinity and femininity. Jesus, Jesus both redeemed Males and females, as a male. He did it as a male. And God did choose to refer to himself patristically, as a father. But Jesus redeemed masculinity and femininity. When Jesus came, he exemplified the perfect male being. How? Gentleness, tenderness, purity, firmness, leadership, provision through miracles. I mean, he was the perfect man. The perfect man. Never failed. And he did that for me because of my failings, because of my misogynistic leanings. Because deep down in the guts of who I am, I tend towards chauvinism and pigism. It's, it's, it's something that I've learned to confess quickly to my beautiful wife. But he also redeemed femininity. Because in his place here, he 
submitted to the Father. He exemplified that etzer ethos, that helper support, I'm here to serve humanity. Jesus said, I didn't come to rule and to reign, but to serve humanity by giving my life for many. And the Father dignified the Son because the Son honored him out of love, not out of inferiority. So when we do peel away all the onion layers, and, and by the way, as you, point, as you peel the onion layers away, what you're going to find is your finger stops pointing at society around you saying, society did that, and my dad did that, and my husband does this, or my wife did that. And all of a sudden, the finger will kind of start to point inward, and you'll be like, okay, and I did this, and I did that. And finally, when the onion layer is really getting peeled down deep, you're going to be pointing the finger at God saying, and you did this. That's where real prayer begins to happen. That's where it really begins to happen, and that's where the cross has to come in. That's where you can say to God, you know what, God? You do say, trust me, and I can because Jesus came, and he did for me what I couldn't do. Jesus lived as a perfect male. He lived as a perfect male, and he also redeemed my femininity as a male. He did that. He did it perfectly. When he went to the cross, all of my failings, all of my shame, all of my guilt, Jesus was saying, I will take all of this upon myself and I will forgive and love and accept you. And when Jesus rose from the grave and the Holy Spirit was poured out and poured into us, what Jesus was doing was recreating the garden people, us. And we still do that utterly and totally imperfectly, shamefully. The history of the church is a history of broken, misogynistic, messed up, devaluing of women, overvaluing of men. But his mercies are new every morning. So on this Sunday morning, we can embrace that challenge to partner with God and rule and reflect him rightly in our marriages and our relationships with each other as a family. Because Jesus made the way we are the new garden humanity. We are the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, breaking in. We are the expression of what humanity will be when the king finally returns. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. Lord Jesus, um, I know I've taken a lot of time today, and, and, and it's necessary there's so much that could be said. I feel like there's so much that wasn't said. What needs to be heard, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would apply it in the hearts and minds of your people. And I ask you, Spirit, to guide this time now. For some in this room, um, things that have been said, they're just locked into a, a position of offense. They feel like it's just so offensive. Help, help, Lord. Help open hearts. Help open ears to hear as broken as I say things, Holy Spirit, you can say things clearly, and your love for every soul in this room, make that clear. Your definition and reason and purpose for every soul in this room, make that clear. And most important this morning, Jesus, as we just remember the cross through communion, I ask God that you would help us in that forgiven place of acceptance, that we don't have to be masculine to be redeemed by you. We don't have to be feminine to be redeemed by you. We don't define ourselves. You define us by the spirit and by the scriptures and by the community around us. God, you have created every single one of these men and women uniquely, beautifully, down to the very DNA structures. They are unique, and yet you put us together collectively to image bear you in this world, feminine and masculine. 
God, I just ask you to forgive us. I ask you to forgive us for forgetting that you are actually good in the way that you've created us. God, I ask you to forgive us for our hearts not being broken. Forgive us for, I pray collectively for the Christian community, God, that you would forgive us for pointing the finger and rallying around politics and saying stupid things on Facebook that have no reflection in your character and love. Please forgive us. God, as we approach February and we start fasting, would you give us such a hunger for you in this world and a hunger to love people so clearly, to care for them because they are so beautiful and so precious. Draw us one unto another to care for each other. And wash us, Lord Jesus, in your blood. Wash us clean today. Your mercies are new. Every day we have the opportunity to stand in this world and be that gardener, that normal human being cultivating human society and human flourishing. Lord, we want to cultivate a city right here in the south end of the metro that sings your praises, sings of your glory, sings of your love, and surrenders to the way that you've done things simply because you're God. We worship and we trust you. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand. At this point, we take communion on Sunday mornings and there'll be two people up here on each side of the aisles and you can come forward and take bread and dip it in a glass of wine or grape juice. And this is a way in which Jesus instituted remembering his death and resurrection. And so come forward this morning and be embraced by the God who loves you. Place your faith in Jesus to guide you and to take you where he wants you to be. Father, bless this time of song and communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.